together. The idea of the sermon this morning was, let's not quit. And the idea tonight is, let's charge ahead. We're going to talk tonight about David's mighty men. Suppose that I ask you this evening to write an essay on one of the following men. You can choose the one you want. Adano, Eliezer, Shema, Abishai, or Benai. Now, you might say, well, Don, I couldn't write a page about any of them. In fact, I would be hard-pressed even to spell their names. I don't know that that would be that big of a discredit to any of us because although these men are Bible characters, they are certainly not prominent Bible characters, but they still hold some great lessons for us tonight. Tonight we're going to be studying from 2 Samuel chapter 23, and we're going to read about each of these men. In fact, during the scripture reading, I was thinking that was mean of me to assign that as the scripture reading, where you've got this list of men, but he did a good job with it. We appreciate that. The title of the sermon tonight is David's Mighty Men. And these men are of great importance to David, because the Bible tells us that David was a great man of war, and he won many battles, but he never won them alone. He won them with the help of his mighty men. And you know, very few things in life that are worth accomplishing are accomplished alone. You know, generally, a child, if he is raised successfully, it's not to the credit of the mother alone or to the father alone, but usually it is both of them working jointly. Great churches are not built alone. A great church is not built solely by great elders. A great church is not built solely by a great preacher. A great church is not built solely by great Bible class teachers, but a great church is built upon great members and leaders and preachers working together to accomplish a task. And David won these battles, but he did not win them alone. And so tonight, we're going to study David's mighty men. We're going to look at several of them, and we're going to notice some great truths that we can learn from them. Here is the first one tonight. His name is Adano. We read about him in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 8. The Bible says these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. The, tac the Tacmanite that sat in the seat, chief amongst the captains, the same was Adano the Eznite. He lifted up his spear, listen to this, against 800 whom he slew at one time. Now that's all the Bible says about him. How would you describe this man? You think we could describe him as a man of war? You say, well, sure, he killed 800. And think about this, he killed 800 at one time. That is amazing. Not over his career as a warrior, but at one time. Do you think we could describe him as a man of courage? Well, certainly, anyone who would take on a task such as this is a man of courage. But don't you think it would be accurate to describe Adno this way? He was a man who accomplished so much with so little. Isn't that a great description? Here's a man, he killed 800 men, and look at his weapon. His weapon was a spear, not an AR-15, not some sort of explosive, not a chemical weapon, but a spear. I want us to consider this characteristic of Adeno, and that is doing so much with so little. Now, 
I want us to look at some areas in which we could apply that. First, I want you to think about the area of finances, doing so much with so little. Immediately, who comes to our mind is Luke chapter 21. We think about the poor widow. Luke 21, verses 1 through 4, there is a widow. The Bible says she had two mites. That was a very, very small amount of money. But think about how much good she has done through the ages. Think about how many sermons she has been mentioned in. How many times before we take up the collection that she has been used as an example. She has done so much with so little. And of course, Jesus said she had given more than all of them. What about the Macedonian brethren that you read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5? The text indicates, the King James says, they had been reduced to penury. That is, they were very, very poor. And yet, Paul talks about the liberality of their giving. That is, they were very poor financially, but they gave beyond what they had power to give. That's what verse 3 says, they gave beyond their power. I heard a gospel preacher tell about a congregation many years ago, maybe 75 years ago, where he was attending at the time. He was the preacher. And he said that there was a woman who was a member of that congregation. He said the woman was very, very poor. She had been deserted years before by her husband, and she was left to raise four boys on her own. He said she lived in a shack that by modern standards would have been condemned under city codes. And this preacher, he would go by each Lord's Day and pick up her and her four boys and take them to worship services. He said one day after the morning service, the men were counting the contribution, and in the plate, they found a gold wedding ring. And they were trying to figure out who it belonged to, and they finally concluded that it was this woman. That's all she had to give. And so she took this gold wedding ring, and she put it in the contribution. You know, today, we've got stocks and bonds and CDs and profit sharing and saving accounts and garages filled with possessions. Today, some do so little with so much, while others have done so much with so, so little. Brethren, I believe this is one area of Christian responsibility that may end up costing more members of the church their souls than we have ever imagined so much can be done with so little in the area of finance. Secondly, I want you to think about the area of education. You know, this has been a cop-out for many people through the ages because they say, I don't want to teach. I don't want to serve publicly because I've got a lack of education. They are afraid that they're going to get up and use improper grammar, subject-verb agreement, and people are going to think less of them. And some have sidestepped their Christian responsibility because of things that really don't matter like that. But you know, when you look at the Bible, we learn that the men who turned this world upside down were men who had very little education. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, the Jews perceived the Jewish leadership, very educated men, looked at Peter and John and said these were ignorant and unlearned men. That doesn't mean that they were stupid men. It means they didn't have much formal education. And yet, look what they were doing. Think about this principle, doing so much with so little in the area of our talents and our abilities and our resources. You know, I suppose there are very few who will be five-talent men. There are very few Gus Nichols and Guyan Woods and N.B. Hardimans and, and giants. Very few are five-talent men. But the question is this, 
What are we doing with the talents that we do have? You know, in Matthew chapter 25, we read about three men. One was a man who was given one talent by his master. One was given two talents, and the, the other was given five talents. Now, the two-talent man did not even have half of what the five-talent man had, but look what he did with what he had. Verse 22, he said, Lord, you gave me two talents. Behold, I have gained two talents in addition to them. Look what he did. He doubled it. He did so much with so little. A noble work God has for you, a place no other mortal can fill. He plans and prays and calls for you the, to work the wonders of His will. What God can do with you, with you, what God can do with you, all heaven waits, all earth elates to see what God can do with you. Think about this principle with regard to our time. Now, I mentioned this to you in another sermon recently, but certainly it fits here. Brother Wendell Winkler told a story years ago. He said he was teaching a class on stewardship, and he suggested to this particular congregation, he said that they should set 10% as a beginning point to give to the Lord when it came to money. And he goes on to tell that during the class, an elderly woman in her 80s raised her hand, and she said, Brother Winkler, may I ask you a question? She said, we always suggest that we give 10% of our money to the Lord. Why don't we suggest we give 10% of our time to the Lord? And he broke it down this way. What a great suggestion. I shared this to you, but I want you to listen again. There are 168 hours in a week. And so 10% of our time would be 17 hours. And so if a man reads his Bible and he prays for one hour a day, that's seven hours. Let's say that same man attends all of the worship services of the Lord, Sunday morning Bible class, Sunday morning worship, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and one other function during the week, maybe some sort of get-together, fellowship, training class, whatever it is, that's five more hours. That brings you to 12 hours. Let's say that same man, each day he gets off work at 4 o'clock. On Monday, he visits the nursing home for one hour. Tuesday, he goes by the hospital for one hour. On Wednesday, he visits visitors who might have come from the community. Thursday, he's going to go and make calls to the unfaithful. He does that for one hour. When he gets through with all of that, he still has 90% of his time left. Brethren, we could do it. You know, sometimes we talk about work ethic. And we talk about the fact that a person should work 40 hours for 40 hours of pay. And we point out sometimes that if your employer is giving you 40 hours of pay, but you spend your time in the break room or chatting with employees or playing on the internet or, or just talking, we talk about your work ethic being in question. What if the Lord called us into account for our work ethic? What if the Lord says to you on the day of judgment, you could have worked 9,000 hours in my service, and yet you actually worked... How much would you owe the Lord? What about our spiritual work ethic? What's the bottom line? The bottom line is this. When we get to the end of our lives and we sit back, we might say, well, if I'd have had more money, I would have done this for the Lord. If I'd have had more education, I would have done If I'd have had more ability, if I'd have had more time, but we never used what we did have. Adno was a man who did so much 
with so little. Here's our second man tonight, and this is Eliezer. We read about him in verse number 9. The Bible says, after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. What an unfortunate name is that. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of three mighty men with David. When they defied the Philistines that were gathered together in battle, and the men of Israel were gone astray. Now, I want you to listen to verse 10 particularly. It says about Eliezer, He arose, and he smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to his sword, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. How would you describe Eliezer? Here is a man who fought, the Bible says, until his hand was weary. It says, until his hand clung unto his sword. The Hebrew word here that's translated as clung is an interesting word. Have you ever worked so hard maybe with a yard tool, an axe, or a, a machete, a piece of rope? I've had this experience in the past when you're holding on to the weed eater and you get done and you almost can't even open your hand. It is difficult to let go of. This man held his sword so tightly, so hard, for so long, the Bible says his hand clung to his sword. This Hebrew word carries with it the idea of two things that are stuck together, that are glued together, that are joined as one. Friend, how hard do you fight in the Lord's kingdom? I want you to listen to this. Luke chapter 13 and verse 24 says this, Strive, this is Jesus, strive to enter into the narrow gate. For I say, many will seek to enter in and will not be able. Strive to enter in. This Greek word is interesting. The word that's translated as strive is the Greek word agonizomai. What English word does that sound like to you? Agonizomai. You say, that sounds kind of like Agonize is where we get the word agonize. This word agonizomai is sometimes translated as fight. Sometimes it's translated as strive. Sometimes it's translated as labor intensively. The Lord said agonize, strive, fight, labor intensively to enter the narrow gate. Friends, if you want to go to heaven, be like Eliezer. You know, sometimes we want it easy. Sometimes we say, don't set the bar too high. I don't want to expend that much effort. That just sounds too hard. I can't do that. Now, that doesn't mean that you've got to work your way to heaven. It doesn't mean that you've got to achieve a certain level before God's going to let you in because that's impossible. What it means is you need to have focus like your life depends on it. That's the diligence that I should be putting in to my spiritual life. You remember that Paul, when he got to the end of his life, said, I have fought a good fight. What's he mean? I've been diligent about this. I have finished the course. He doesn't mean I'm just at the end, I'm, I'm about to die. What he is saying is, it's the idea that I have run a race and I've successfully made it to the end. I have kept the faith, 2 Timothy 4, 7. It's Galatians 6 and verse 9, let us not be weary in well-doing. So what we talked about this morning, don't give up. Why would he say don't be weary? Because you're striving so hard that you're getting weary. But he says, in due season we will reap if we faint not. Don't you know along the way Eliezer took some blows? Don't you know along the way he was struck, he was hit? Don't you know that he was hurt? 
don't you know he wanted to stop? But he pressed ahead, and the Lord said he won a great victory. Here's the third one. His name is Shammah. He's mentioned in verse number 11. The Bible says, after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. The point of that is it is a valuable piece of ground. And the people fled from the Philistines. Now listen to this. The people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, and he defended it, and he killed the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. And so what's going on is there is a battle that's described, and the Bible says everybody else fled. Everyone else is scared. They abandoned this piece of ground because they're scared of the Philistines. Everybody except one person, and that is Shema. I think an accurate description of this man would be this. He was a man who fought unrelentingly even though he fought alone. You know, the courage of some men, the courage of some men depends upon the presence and the sympathy and the help of other men. But they fail if they have to stand alone. I like what one commentator said. I'm going to read you this. It's a little lengthy, but listen, please. He says, under such circumstances, the courage of a true hero is fully brought out. He is independent of men because he depends on God. By his single-handed efforts, one such man is able to chase a thousand. And I really like this next part. He said, his courage, his courage and success infuse fresh vigor into fearful hearts and the people return after him. He alone is fit to be a leader of men. You know, it is easy to stand solid when everybody else is standing solid. It is easy to fight against the devil when people are cheering you on, but what about when everybody else flees? What about when you are left alone? What about when the troops of the enemy are coming upon you? You, you know, sometimes leaders, they will lead the fight if that is popular opinion. But when it's not popular opinion, they tend to recoil. But you see, this is not this man. He fought alone. Sometimes preachers will proclaim the Word of God, and they will do it strongly as long as the majority of the people are patting them on the back. But if they think there's going to be opposition, the truth fades into the background, and the message sometimes changes. Sometimes Christians will talk the talk and they'll walk the walk when they're around other Christians, but when they're alone and the troops of the Philistines are coming upon them, it's a different story. Shema fought unrelentingly even though he fought alone. Brethren, listen to this. The true measure of my spirituality is what I do when I'm alone. Now, if you get a group of men that have this kind of character, that's how you build great churches. And I would add another point, and it's this. You know, in the Lord's church today, sometimes we hear comments like this. Someone will say, the man making the announcements might say, it's good to have the family together today. And that's right, we're a family. You know, we talked about that this morning, 1 Timothy 3.15. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes they will say, it's good to have the body here today. And that's good. You know, the church is the body of Christ. We have family life groups, body life groups. But have you ever heard this said? The army is going to reconvene tonight and we want to have all the soldiers present. You ever heard that? Brethren, 
I'm afraid that we are in danger of raising up a generation that has a distorted view of the church. We need to understand that the church is a vineyard where people work. The Bible describes it that way. It's a temple where we worship. It's a sheepfold where we follow. It's a body where we are cohesive. It's a family where we love one another. But it is also an army where we fight for truth and for right. Look at Shema. How did he fight? The text says he stationed himself in the middle of the field and he defended it. And we've got to do the same thing today. We've got to defend the concept of the one church. We can't ever weaken on that point. We have to stand against the unscriptural role of female leadership. We've got to stand for basic morals. The Bible hasn't changed on this. Who would have thought that we would be fighting the battle when it comes to homosexuality, even in the Lord's church, and things like transgender and, and things of this nature? The Bible hasn't changed. And where are those battles going to be fought? These battles must be fought in the pulpit and in the Bible classes and in our homes. You know, many times gospel preachers have been the victims of vicious attacks because the only time that people hear something is from the pulpit. And then they get angry about this. I had a close friend, grew up in Alabama. He said he had never heard a sermon about modesty and mixed swimming until he was a grown man and he heard it from the pulpit and it made him furious. Grew up in the church, said he never heard this before. You see, somebody dropped the ball. You see, the problem is God's truth with regard to controversial doctrinal issues can't come only from the preacher. It's got to be taught in Bible classes. It's got to be taught by parents. It's got to be taught by elders. And only when we pull together do we have a chance. Brethren, if we're going to win the battle, we've got to be like Shema. Here's the next one. His name is... Abishai. You read about Abishai in verse number 18. He was the brother of Joab, if you remember Joab. The Bible says about Abishai, he lifted up his spear against 300 and he slew them and had the name amongst three. But I want you to notice what inspiration, what the Bible tells us about him in verse 19, because this is very interesting. It says about Abishai, he was the most honorable... The ESV says he was the most renowned of them. Therefore, he was their captain. But listen to this phrase. But he did not attain unto the first three. That's interesting. He became the captain because he's the most honorable, but he did not attain to the level of these other men. You know what that means? He was a great man, but he was not the greatest. If I were to ask you the question... Who has the first recorded gospel sermon in the New Testament? No doubt you'd say Peter. If I were to ask you who preached first to the Gentiles, to the household of Cornelius, you'd say Peter. If I were to ask you who wrote first and second Peter, you'd say, well, obviously Peter. But who led Peter to the Lord? You'd say Andrew. Andrew was never as illustrious as Peter, but oh, what a great man Andrew was. You know, the fact that we need to realize is greatness is not determined by recognition. Greatness is determined by service. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20? But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your minister. Matthew 20, 26, and 27. You know, whenever a family down the street has lost a loved one, and you go by to comfort them, 
You might not get your name in the bulletin for that. Your name's not going to be on the marquee sign out front, but you've done a great act of service. Whenever a family has somebody in the hospital and they need a hand with their children and you offer to care for them or you take care of their house or cut their grass or whatever it is, you might not get any recognition, but you've done a great act of service. And Christ said that service is the key to greatness. You know, some of the Lord's greatest servants are those who go unrecognized for their deeds. But you know, sometimes we can be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted to say, look what I've done. But rather, we need to serve quietly, even if we go unrecognized. Because one day, you'll be recognized, and it will be great. Here is the next man. His name is Benaiah. You read about Benaiah in verse number 20. The Bible says about Benaiah, he was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds. Now listen to this. He killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. That's interesting. He's, he's described as killing two men who were lion-like. Imagine having that description. But then it says this, And he also had gone down and he killed a lion in the midst of a pit, on a snowy day. That's interesting, isn't it? Why is that there? Well, I think that's there because it's quite a feat to kill a lion. Imagine fighting a lion with some sort of a handheld weapon. And then, why is it mentioned that he did it in a pit? Because that really adds to it. Fighting a lion is intimidating, but imagine if you're in a pit, you don't have anywhere to run. But then he adds this, he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. What's the point of that? That further complicates the matter. You can't move very well in the snow and you're fighting a lion in a pit. How would you describe this man? Do you think it's fair to describe this man as a man who accomplished a difficult task? <laughs> Certainly, I think you could. And when we think about accomplishing difficult tasks, I think we've got to think about the church in the first century. You know, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23 says that they had taken the gospel to the entire known world, and yet they didn't have TV, they didn't have radio, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have the internet. An older gospel preacher told a story, happened years ago, true story. He said that he was doing a gospel meeting, and it was in the days of, of tent meetings. Some of you might remember those. But he said during the days of this tent meeting, there was a woman who came every night. She couldn't walk, and so he said that they would get there, and she would take out two blankets, and they would lay one on the ground in front of her, and she would crawl on that blanket, and then they would lay the next one, and she would crawl on that blanket, and they would take the other, and she would crawl on that blanket, and she crawled up under that tent, and he said she came and was there every single meeting for the duration of that event. You think she would be one who accomplished something very difficult? She literally crawled to the services. And yet sometimes today, 39 drops of rain will keep 40 members at home. Brethren, we can accomplish, we can accomplish the very difficult, but it has to start with love and a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Here's the conclusion tonight. David's mighty men. What if we started a list today and we called it the Lord's mighty men, or Willow Avenue's mighty men and women. Would you be described as a person 
who accomplished so much, though you had so little? Would you be described as one who fought until your hand was weary? Would you be described as one who fought unrelentingly, though you fought alone? Would you be described as one who accomplished that which is very difficult in the Lord's service? Brethren, we can't ever quit. That's the message from this morning. But tonight is, we need to charge ahead. We need to be serious about the Lord's work because that's why we're here. Maybe you're here tonight and you say, I haven't been fighting. I've been tired. I've been weary. But I am ready to rededicate myself and be diligent in the Lord's service. Maybe you're a Christian who it's time to come back to the Lord and make your life right. If that is the case, we would be glad to help you and pray for you tonight. Maybe you're here tonight and you're ready to become a soldier in the Lord's army. You're ready to obey the gospel by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. If that is the case, we would be very honored to assist you in that. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.